God's house. And then last Sunday we talked about how Jesus uh, ditched his mom and dad in order to spend time in his father's house, the temple in in Jerusalem. And remember, they they like they looked for him somewhere between three days and maybe five days. They looked for him. They finally found him in the temple. We talked about how Mary probably just grabbed him by his ear and, and marched him out. I, Jesus was twelve years old when. When he had this desire within him to begin the, the ministry, the work, the purpose of his life that his father had, had called him to. Um, and instead, he humbled himself and he went home with Joseph and, and, and Mary back to the little backwater town of Nazareth where they lived and, and Joseph was a carpenter. Now, I, I think, and, and it, it really it makes very little difference to the, to the story of, of the Bible and Jesus' life. And, and so, like, we don't need to argue about it, but I think it's entirely possible that a short time after this temple incident where Mary and Joseph find Jesus there after those several days, I think after that temple event, Joseph died. Um, I, we don't know, we're not told anything about it, but I, I think shortly after that, Joseph passed away from, from some, for some reason. And, and here's why I, I think that. The, the first reason is Joseph is never mentioned again in the biblical story. So Joseph and Mary, they lose Jesus as they're heading back home after the Passover when Jesus is 12. They come back in Jerusalem, they find him. Mary, remember, she like scolds him. Your, your father and I, she says, we've, like, we've been distraught, we've been worried. And his response is, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Like, Joseph, you're not my dad. Uh, and so there's this intense moment there, and that's the last time in the biblical story that Joseph is mentioned. Now, Mary, she's mentioned a whole bunch more. She comes back into the story over and over and over again, and the death of, of Jesus, and all of these things, Mary is there. Joseph is never mentioned again. Uh, the other reason why I think maybe Joseph had passed away is that, um, that after they find him in the, the temple, if Joseph had died after that, Jesus being the oldest male in his family would have had the responsibility to care for his mothers and his other siblings until the youngest one was of age. Was, that was just the social kind of rule and norm of the day. And if you look at the timeline, that, that would explain why Jesus at 12 says, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? I've got to be about my father's work. And, and then, but he doesn't do that. He goes back home with Joseph and Mary, and then there's silence in Jesus' life for 18 years until he's 30. And so if Joseph dies, the, the, the explanation for that may be that Jesus had the responsibility of, of providing for his mom. And so he, he started doing his dad's carpentry, Joseph's carpentry work. He started providing for the family until the youngest was old enough and then they could kind of provide uh, for themselves. And that would account for Jesus waiting 18 years before he uh, jumps back in and, and begins the ministry that he wanted to start at 12. So from the temple scene in um, Luke chapter 2, which, what we 
looked at last week. Um, from the temple scene where Mary is scolding Jesus, the biblical timeline jumps 18 years. And the next time we see Jesus, we're in John chapter 2. And um, John tells two stories in, in chapter 2 of, of his biography of Jesus. The first one takes place in a town called Cana. And it, it is like four to seven miles kind of northeast of his hometown in, in Nazareth. John records these two events, the wedding in Cana, and then Jesus visiting the temple again. And so it kind of ties back to that 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. Now these two stories that John do, they are, they are wildly different stories, completely different kinds of stories, but they point to this huge discrepancy between the kind of religion that Jesus Practice and the kind of religion that, that Jesus would promote in his ministry, a religion of loving God and, and loving other, a religion of relationships with people and with God, versus the, the kind of temple religion of the day, the, the religion that, the kind of, that he grew up kind of around that really was focused more on um, personal piety. Like, I'm going to follow the rules at least the way I want to follow them, and if I follow them better than you follow them, then I'm a better um, person. And so we're going to look at the wedding story first from John um, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and maybe the screen will keep working, but I'm going to read from right here in case it doesn't. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus responded, woman, what? Okay, first of all, woman is not offensive here. <laughs> this is how they talked. Okay, so it wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't like talking down to her. Um, he was addressing her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Oh, man, maybe my mom was a lot like Mary. I'm sorry, we're not, we're not live streaming this, so it's okay. If I say that. Because I don't know, did you, did you, he just goes, she's like, hey, Jesus, they, they run out of wine. And he goes, what does that have to do with me? And she's like, don't pay attention to him. Just do whatever he's supposed to do. Okay, mom, well, whatever. So... So 18 years ago, Jesus is ready to get to his father's work. And then John chapter 2 starts with Jesus coming in. He's got a few disciples. And he, he's like, he's just hanging out at, at this wedding that he's been in, invited to in a neighboring town. And, and again, he's there with a few disciples. Now, weddings in um, Eastern culture, they're, they're, they're a huge deal. Like, weddings can be a really big deal for us today. Some people drop tens of thousands of dollars on a wedding t today um, and, and it's a it's a big deal but but really that last you know may, maybe the day of the wedding rehearsal uh and then the day of the wedding so kind of a two-day kind of thing in the evening uh, a lot of times it's like hey when you get off work that come to the rehearsal and we'll do it you know for an hour or something and we'll go home and we'll come back the next day for the wedding but but in eastern um cultures weddings are are, are a huge, they're a huge event. They involve tons of people. Like a whole town is invited, all your family, all your friends. In fact, they're seven-day events. And then the seventh day is kind of when the, when the wedding is consummated and there's all of the 
into that. But there was a huge, huge event um, last week. There's food and this, there's wine, just all this stuff um, going on. It was a great big celebration. And, and so uh, I, when Andrew and I got married uh, ancient years ago, well, 33 years ago almost, uh, I, I remember the, at the rehearsal, so we had to, we got married at First Baptist in Augusta, where her, her family attended, and um, at the rehearsal, we, we tried everything, we lit all the lamps, there, everything worked. And then we come to the wedding, and uh, the, the candle opera thing on the on the groom's side, it's always the groom's problem, right? The candle, like none of the candles lit. The poor little candle lighter was up there, I was one of the family little kids up there, kind of lighted him, and he's like, I don't know what to do. It's not, it's not light, we tried forever. Uh, and so the whole ceremony video, uh, is the candles are out on that, that one side. Like, that's, that's a problem. In Eastern culture, this is like, to mess up a wedding is something that would stay with you for the rest of your, your lives. Like, you're going to be the family who screwed up at that, that wedding. And, and so to mess up a wedding was, was just as big of a deal as the wedding itself um, and, and going through that that process. And, and so um, here's my opinion about this scene and why John uses it to kind of break the silence of 18 years from uh, when Jesus was 12 in the temple. Now I've always heard, always been taught um, growing up in church that, that Mary and Jesus, their family, were relatives of the, of the groom probably that was getting married in, in Cana. And that's why they were there. And that's why Mary um, asked Jesus, kind of insisted that Jesus do something when the wine, um, when the wine runs out. She seems like wants to save her family from embarrassment, and that's why she kind of forces Jesus to get um, to get involved. However, I, I find it odd that Mary would come to Jesus and and say uh, they have no wine. Like if they were family, and, and Mary was there helping the, the wedding, like the only reason she would be doing this or saying anything was because as a family member, she was helping uh, organize or arrange the things of the wedding. Maybe she was in charge of the kitchen or something, and then she finds out they don't have any wine, and, and, and she goes. In my head, that makes sense. But if this was Mary's area, if she was part of the family and she was in charge of this, why didn't she know there wasn't enough wine before the celebration started? And maybe something happened, somebody broke a jar, I, I don't know. But it just seems odd to me that she would come in kind of a hurry and a huff and be like, they don't have any wine, Jesus, you gotta, you gotta get involved. If she was a family member, she was already in, involved in that. However, if she was only attending the wedding, then it's completely logical, at least again in my head, that maybe she just discovered that they were running out of wine. Maybe she got up to go to the restroom or something, or she was milling around or walking, and she walked past the kitchen and she happened to hear the servants in the room like freaking out because they didn't have any wine. This was a, a big deal. Um, and so uh, if, if she was in charge of this, she should have known ahead of time. If she was just attending, it, it might have been a surprise to her like it was a surprise to everybody else. And she only overheard. Also, Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Like, like why are you bringing this up? This doesn't concern me. But if Jesus was family to these people, it absolutely was his problem. 
it absolutely concerned him because the, the failure of the family of the wedding would be his failure as, as well. And so it seems odd that, that he would say, hey, this, like, this is not my suit, not my monkeys. I, I don't have anything to do uh, with this. I, I suspect that maybe Jesus and Mary and their family were family friends of the groom. And I think maybe it's possible that Mary just overheard, she learned somehow that the wine is running out, and because she is a kind and compassionate woman, she goes to Jesus quietly and she says, there's a problem. And I don't want this poor family to suffer social humiliation. Can you do anything? Now, socially, it wasn't Jesus' problem. Like, like he didn't have to get involved at all. And, and that would account for him like saying, this doesn't really concern me, <laughs> Mom. Like, why are you bringing me into this? But I think Jesus sees something bigger going on here because in the very next thing he says, he ties what's going on to like this spiritual mission of the moment. And so he, he says, the next thing he says is, my hour has not yet come. <coughs> Ooh, excuse me. So uh, look, I, I, think, I think Mary is just the kind of person who wants to help. I think she doesn't want this poor family to face any kind of shame or humiliation right at the beginning of their marriage. I mean, Mary is a child of Abraham. Abraham was the, the most hospitable person there ever was. Like, like to a fault where his family was concerned, he was hospitable to every person. She was also an, a, a, a descendant of King David and Solomon. And David and Solomon knew how to throw a party. Like she was just, she knew how to probably do this. And so I think God uses the just innate kindness of Mary in this body. God knew that she was going to see a problem and want to do something to, to fix it. You probably know people like that. That like it's not this is not my concern, but man, I just have a heart for you, and this must be a difficult situation. Let me see what I can do. And I think God used Mary's heart to reveal to Jesus that it was now time to begin the ministry that he wanted to start 18 years ago. And what better way to kick off the ministry of, of Jesus than saving this family from social humiliation, just like he's going to save them from their sin later on. So Jesus seems to recognize God's hand in this moment. He performs this incredible miracle, but he does it completely behind the scenes. No fanfare, no attention for Jesus. Nobody knows that he's done this except his disciples, Mary, and the servants. They're the only ones who know what's going on. In fact, I think that's why John makes it a point in the text to say that when the master of ceremonies of the, of the wedding tastes the wine and he discovers how good it is, he doesn't call Jesus and say, hey, good job. It's the best wine I've ever had. He calls the bridegroom. And he commends the bridegroom for the choice of the, the wine. Like nobody told him it was Jesus. Jesus does not take the spotlight off of the newlyweds. And, and honestly, it just sounds like something Jesus would do, right? When he's in this situation, he has this incredible power. He does this really cool miracle. And he's just like, look, don't tell anybody. This is about them. It's not about me. Um, yes, this is like the first miracle that I've performed in my life. But let's not talk. Let's not talk about it. 
I mean, because Jesus saves the day, the party continues, the couple is married, the feast is uninterrupted, and instead of this family being the butt of jokes in the community, they become the toast of the town. And I think that's a really cool turn of events that Jesus was able to orchestrate there. And I think that John, in, in his Jesus biography, does this incredible job of helping us see the kind of person that Mary was. And, and how her personality and the way that she was willing to help and her kindness towards others affected Jesus. And maybe John wanted us to see a little bit of a picture about why God chose Mary to carry Jesus in the first place. And so Jesus learned from both his father in, in heaven and his mother on earth to prioritize people. Jesus begins his ministry with a quiet little miracle that took a horrible situation and turned it into a happy one. And Jesus got none of the credit. It seems exactly the way Jesus might start off his ministry. Now, the next thing that happens in, in the story in John chapter 2 is that Jesus and his disciples uh, were told they're heading to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. Again, Passover is the celebration that Jesus was at at 12 where he ditches his his parents. Like the wedding ceremony, which was a seven-day ceremony, it was a great big party, it was a lot of excitement, all kinds of things happening. Passover was also a seven-day ceremony. It's a big feast. All people from all over, Jews from all over the world would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, this feast, a seven-day feast that commemorated the time of the Passover where God liberated the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. So that's what the Passover celebration was about. And so it's this huge, big deal. But this event is a polar opposite from the, uh, from the wedding at the beginning of the chapter. So here's, here's what it says in uh, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Big shift, right? He's at the wedding in Cana, he's quiet, he performs this miracle, he's like, don't tell anybody, it's not a big deal, let's keep the focus on them. And then he shows up in the temple, and it's like, it's like the first public thing that he, that he does, and um, he's yelling, he's drawing attention, he makes a whip, and, and he starts like whipping animals and, and, and whatever. Like, if, if you're just reading this story, like people outside of the church all the time, they go, Jesus is just not a very nice guy. But look, like if you were in that scene right there, you, you would go, uh, that dude's crazy. It's completely outside of, of the normal kind of expected uh, behavior. And, and on top of that, he, he kind of begins this public aspect of his ministry, and not a single miracle is performed. The miracle is done in the wedding, and nobody knows about it. And here, he just kind of goes crazy on everybody, and no, no miracle is performed. And let me just tell you, when you're reading scripture and, and something seems off, and, and you like read this story and you go, this doesn't, this doesn't seem like Jesus, I think it's a clue for us to like dig a little deeper. It means we maybe don't understand exactly what's going on, and we need to dig in and figure out why does this seem so odd? Jesus is so kind and caring and nice at the wedding, and he's so crazy at the temple. 
something else has got to be um, going on. So look, if the people that were at the temple that day were, were simply uh, honest, hardworking people, um, just trying to earn a living, does it make sense that Jesus would drive them out of the temple like this? That he would just kind of go crazy on them like this? I don't think so. And so I think we got it again. We got to dig it a little further. So the temple was under the uh, control of uh, the priests and the, the Levites. So in order to be a priest in the temple, you had to come from the line of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. So to go, you go again. You go back to the Passover and the Exodus of, of Egypt uh, by by Israel. And so Aaron was the first priest. If you were going to be a priest or a high priest, you had to be in the line of Aaron. The priests were the ones who took care of the sacrifices. They sprinkled the blood. Uh, they put the animals on the, the altar. They also took care of all the stuff inside the tabernacle or the temple proper. So they changed the bread out. They made sure there was oil for the candles. They changed out the incense. And then once a year, the high priest would go back behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies uh, in the Ark of the Covenant. And he would make sacrifice there for all the people. The priests were assisted by a, a tribe of Israel um, called the Levites. And, and they were the ones who kind of prepped all the sacrifices for the priests. You think, you know, um, Jerusalem goes from maybe a quarter of a million people on a normal day, and then a feast comes like Passover, and maybe they go over a million people in town. So it's a huge, huge undertaking. So the Levites help prep all the sacrifices. They also clean up everything. They, they keep the temple and the grounds all um, looking good. And, and so they were in charge of all this stuff, uh, as well as... Um, kind of being in charge of the religious state of the nation. And they informed the king on what to do. They told people what God expected. They helped them. They, they kind of judged the things that were um, going on. And they helped people understand the proper etiquette that you needed to use when you were uh, on the temple compound and you were interacting in the presence of God. And so um, these two groups of people, the priests uh, of Aaron and then the Levites, they were provided for by the offerings that came in by the Jewish people. So they would bring offerings into the temple, uh, both money and their sacrifices. And then there was this elaborate way that God had um, uh, designed for the priests and the Levites to be taken care of from the offerings of, of the people. The, the problem is, uh, as we say, um, that the money can be corrupting, right? It is a, it is a root of evil. It's, it's not the only root. There's lots of evil things that happen in our lives. But, but it does affect us, right? And so the religious leaders discovered that as the religious authority, they could manipulate the situation and they could get more for um, themselves. Uh, and, and so the religious leaders were unhappy, maybe, with their wage, or maybe they discovered that, that they could do more. And so they found a way to increase their income, and here's how they did it. So during the feast, the seven yearly feast that people would kind of pilgrimage back to Israel, uh, people would come from, like, great distances. And God's command was that you bring with you to the temple an animal sacrifice for your sin, whatever it was, a sheep uh, or a, a bird or a calf or an ox, whatever it was, you would bring that. Now, if you were walking a huge distance and you didn't have a lot of money and you had to come to the temple seven times a year or however many times you ended up making it, bringing an animal and providing for that animal on the trip becomes a big deal, right? You've traveled with children. You know what this is like. 
You gotta stop every five minutes to go to the bathroom. They gotta have snacks. They gotta have their juice box. They gotta be entertained. There's all of these things. So they're, they're walking these great distances. They have this animal, and so they've got to provide for it. So the priests decide, hey, look, um, instead of you bringing the animal with you when you come to the temple, we're gonna sell you an animal when you get here. Sounds like a good idea. You don't have to bring it. It's going to save you money. It's going to be a big deal if you come in. But like so many things, they get corrupted. And the religious leaders, they kind of become like the Jewish mafia. And so they, they, they have this ring kind of running for the people. So they've set up these shops in the temple courtyard where they're selling animals that have been pre-approved by the priests who had to approve all the, the sacrifices. And so if you come into Jerusalem to the temple and you don't buy an animal there, you bring it with you, I think the priests had a way of knowing what were the animals that you brought and what were the animals that were, that were sold there at the temple. And so let's say you come in and you have a sheep and you're going to sacrifice this animal for your sin and you go to the priest and the priest had to approve every sacrifice and make sure it was spotless, there were no blemishes, no broken bones, whatever. And so the priest comes in and he realizes this uh, sheep, this lamb doesn't have the marking of my store. And so he goes, he goes, look, this, this sheep isn't acceptable. God cannot accept this animal. Uh, I know you brought him from a long ways, but it's no good. You, you need to go back out into the courtyard and you need to go to this booth and you need to buy, you need to buy an animal that's already been approved. And so the, the family would go out, they would pay uh, an exorbitant price for a pre-approved lamb that probably what should not have been approved. And so the priest had this big old racket working here. Um, and, and it was this, it was this like really terrible thing. So they would sell them an inferior sacrifice, they would make more money. It was just really bad all around. And there was a whole lot of other things that were that were going on. I just have to think that was kind of the, the biggest. And, and you might go, but okay, all right, but what's the what's the big deal? Well, if you go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 36, here's what you will read. This is um, Leviticus is the list of all the laws that God gave to, to Moses. Verse 36, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. So, so you're going to be honest about, about things. Your scales are going to be honest. Here's why. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, and so it all goes back to Passover. This is really crazy. So look, from the beginning, when God brought people out of Egypt and they're in the desert, they're at the Mount Sinai, and God's given them the law and all this kind of stuff. God is telling the people, look, you were treated unfairly in Egypt. You were oppressed, wrongfully oppressed. Um, and I didn't like that. That's why I rescued you out of Egypt. And I'm bringing you to the promised land. So don't treat other people like Egypt treated you. This is God's whole thing. Look, the, the nations around you treat people terribly, and it's might makes right. And, and if you have the power, you get to set the rules and all of that kind of stuff. But you as my people are not supposed to live that way. If you have power, you're to use it to help the people who don't have the power. Don't treat others the way Egypt treated you. God hates it when people cheat. He hates it when people use their power and authority to gain more power and authority instead of helping those who are in, in need. I think he hates it when we take things that 
that aren't ours when we steal. I think he hates it when we, when we steal by taking credit for something that somebody else does. I think he hates it especially when we cheat our family and our country. And so the religious leaders had developed this way of cheating their brothers and sisters by selling substandard sacrifices at a premium and exchanging money in the temple at a profit. And we go back to Egypt and the story of the Passover. The Egyptians enslaved the Hebrew people in part because of their religious practices. They allowed it. Because if Pharaoh is God and might makes right, then, then God, Pharaoh, can do whatever it is that he, he wants to do. But the religious leaders had enslaved Israel all over again. And just like Pharaoh, they were using religion to cover it up. You can't ask questions. I'm the priest. I'm in charge. You just have to do what I say. And I think this is why Jesus is mad. I think it's why we see such a different side of him from the wedding to the temple. Because the very ones called to make life easier for the people and to lead the way in lifting up the oppressed and helping the, the hurting and the, the helpless, instead they were oppressing the least of these. And so what Jesus found in the temple that day was not a party like it should have been, but a problem. And so Jesus is going to address it. Jesus turned the water into the wine, into wine, I think, because he prioritized people. And the religious leaders, in contrast to Jesus, had put prophets over people. So Jesus says, look, my father's house is not to be a house of, of trade where the rich and powerful oppress the weak and poor. And so whether we're talking about the temple in first century Israel or, or the church of today, real life, or, or any other church. Church is for you. This house is for you. It's for your benefit, your growth. It's where we're supposed to help one another and encourage one another. It's, supposed, it's where we're supposed to come together and, and in celebration each week as we, as we take communion. We share in that communion meal together and the hope that it brings us in, in Christ. Church was designed for us. It's where we get energized and filled up. It's, it's, where, it's where we get, find the strength to face another week out in the world where we got to deal with all kinds of problems and, and situations. It was designed to, to help us, to bring healing and hope into our lives. It was for us, but it's not about us. Our wants, our desires, placed over and above others. Church is not a place where it's about making money. It's a place where we worship God. It's a place where we should be demanding the care of others over the comfort of ourselves. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, then this house is for you, but it's not about you. This house is for your growth. It's, it's where you discover your gifts and your passions. It's, it's for developing friendships, relationships. It's, it's where we learn to look more like Jesus every day. It's where, it's where our kids learn about Jesus on, on their level. And it's where you can mess up without being tossed out. This house is for you, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God, and it's about others. 
Like, oh, that shouldn't be surprising to us. Look, Jesus prioritized people over social practice. That's what we see at the wedding story. And, and Jesus prioritized people over, over politics even. Imagine that. Imagine that. Do you know Jesus never once brings up politics as a reason to have or not have a conversation with somebody? It never comes up. Jesus prioritized people over, over religious piety. Even over him like being perceived as spiritual, Jesus was like he touched the lepers and all the Christian people went, oh my goodness, like Jesus, you're way out of line. Jesus prioritized people even over his own preferences. I think there's only one thing that I'm aware of anyway, where only one area where Jesus may not have prioritized people um, over. And, and that thing is what we're going to talk about uh, next Sunday when we wrap up this series. So I hope you'll come back for that. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, just this opportunity to come and um, to, to worship you and, and to be in this house, to be in your house and, and I pray this really would be your house that when people come in they would find the hope and healing that they would they would find us reaching down reaching across reaching out and helping others and instead of instead of kind of lording it over them God we, we want to look more like your son Jesus and so we see in these two stories at the wedding and at the temple these two sides of of Jesus um, and, and it's not about Jesus being being angry. It's about Jesus standing up for what you yourself desired and wanted. And, and so God, help us to um, help us to, to take a back seat, help us to stay out of the limelight when that is needed, and help us to stand up against injustice and oppression when that is needed. Because that's how we look more like Jesus. And, and so, God, um, thank you for this house, which is for us, even though it's not about us. I, I pray that this place would be a place where we could come each week and we could be filled up and energized and, and excited. We could um, make friends and build relationships that, that last for a really long time. And, and that, God, when we leave this place, we, we leave in a better place than when we came in. And so, Father, thank you. Uh, for this house. In Jesus' name, amen.